Hello and welcome to Beyond Organic Wine. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from, for now, Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, a big thank you to those of you who support by subscribing to our Patreon channel. If you'd like to subscribe, it's vitally important to making this podcast possible. So thank you to those who do. And if you'd like to, the link to our Patreon channel will be in the show notes. If you'd like to make a one-time gift rather than subscribe, I've added a donation option at beyondorganicwine.com. And there are some other suggestions there of ways you can support without money as well, like leaving a great review on your podcast app. In the past, I've mentioned that one of the most valuable lessons I've learned from doing this podcast over the last several years has been to constantly remind myself that what I think I know now and what I'm absolutely convinced is true I will completely change my mind about in approximately a week when I talk to someone who asks me a question that I hadn't considered before and makes me see things from a new perspective. Not only does this give me a lot of humility about my opinions and beliefs, it has made me have as an almost sacred value the creation of a space in my mind and heart and here with this podcast and with this community of people who are listening to this to hold uncertainty and to embrace the unknown. This has begun more and more to be the source of my curiosity. It is in this frame of mind that I'm able to ignite my imagination and learn new things. And it's made me value this community that much more because without you, without the people that I talk to, without everyone involved in this sharing their perspectives, there is no way to grow and learn and change and generate and imagine new. This episode is a special how-to exploration of a year of biodynamic viticulture. Biodynamics is something that I've been dismissive of in the past. Coincidentally, it's also something I've known very little about in the past. (laughs) The more I've learned, the curiouser and curiouser I've become, to the point that I hold biodynamics in this space of intriguing questions and wanting to learn more now. So this episode and the next episode teasing it right now, are sort of a two-part exploration of biodynamics from both a practical and a philosophical perspective. 2024 is the 100-year anniversary of the start of biodynamics, so these episodes are meant as both a celebration of and a deeper look into why biodynamics works. My guest for this episode is Garrett Long. Garrett is the Director of Agriculture at Troon Vineyards. Troon Vineyards is a Demeter Biodynamic Certified and Regenerative Organic Gold Certified Farm in Oregon's Applegate Valley. They are only the fourth farm in the world to achieve regenerative gold certification, and they are creating a beautiful culture in Southern Oregon. I had a great conversation with Troon's general manager, Craig Camp, over a year ago for an episode that I highly recommend and that you can find in the Beyond Organic Wine Library. For this episode, Garrett takes us through an entire year of biodynamic practices at Troon. So this episode is information rich. One of my favorite things about talking to Garrett is that while I intended this to be a sort of step-by-step instructional for practicing biodynamics, he made it so much more. We get the practical how-to, but we never get far from the relevance to the spiritual aspects of agriculture and how they apply to these practices. This is in part due to Garrett's deep sense of the importance of the spiritual aspect of farming to farming itself, 
and in part due to biodynamics, which is unique as a farming practice in its embrace of spiritual perspectives. Garrett talks frankly about some of the ways that biodynamics is often dismissed, but he also offers alternative perspectives and interpretations about what these things may arise from. One note to keep in mind is that I asked Garrett to talk quite a bit about the requirements of Demeter biodynamic certification, and I just want to point out that while he's extremely knowledgeable about this, he isn't a BD certifier, and he isn't speaking for Demeter, so please do your own research and talk to the folks at Demeter if you want to get certified. Having said that, Garrett is a wealth of information. I think everyone will find this conversation to be incredibly valuable, whether or not you plan to get BD certified. Most valuable of all, I think, are the questions about whether we've been asking the right questions about biodynamics, the questions that ask us to consider what we don't yet know. Enjoy. Garrett, welcome. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Adam. I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about your background and, and give a sense of you know where you are in the world and how you ended up there. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, I'm currently serving as the Director of Agriculture at Droon Vineyard. Uh, we are a regenerative organic certified and biodynamic certified vineyard in Southern Oregon in the Applegate Valley. Uh, I, I arrived here about two years ago, but prior to that, I've got about 10 years of experience as a practitioner of biodynamic agriculture. And so I think it's maybe as good a place as any to start, uh, at least in my own journey of how I first discovered biodynamics and farming um, were simultaneous in my discovery I graduated from college with a biology degree. I grew up in Washington State and went to college there as well. And I was always interested in that intersection of, of plants and animals and people and ecology and climate. And I wanted to learn more about farming. I saw agriculture as this intersection of all those things I was passionate about. And I started woofing. Uh, for your listeners who aren't familiar, woof is Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. And it's a work exchange program where you go and you're provided room and board and education about organic farming in exchange for work. And I started my first foray into agriculture, happened to be at a biodynamic farm in Ventura County. It's called Apricot Lane Farms, which I imagine, Adam, you might be familiar with. <laughs> Quite. Yeah, this is our local uh, regenerative star down here in Los Angeles, you know. That's right. Uh, folks there's, that, a whole, yeah. there's a whole film made about it called The Biggest Little Farm came out in 2018 and, and if the anybody documentary hasn't seen really, that yeah sorry. if anybody hasn't seen it you absolutely must it's like just such a well done well done example of of i don't know it, it's bigger than i don't even know what you would put regenerative it's like permaculture it's like it's just a way of thinking about farming that where you know the problem is the solution and what that even means and how you how you deal with everything on the farm ecologically essentially um, but That's go on. It. Sorry. Yeah. That's it. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's, it is, it's a really well-told story. It's a beautiful film that reminds me of sort of like BBC documentaries or planet earth. It's just really beautiful cinematography, yeah. beautiful storytelling. And John Chester, who's the filmmaker and farmer there with his wife, Molly, ha John has a filmmaking background. And so from the time they, they bought the farm, cameras were rolling and the biggest little farm is really the story of that transition of taking an old kind of beat down horse ranch with lemons and avocados and transitioning these 200 acres to using biodynamic and regenerative practices to just this beautiful, you know, wonderland that exists today. Um, 
And I found myself fortunately there as, as a woofer, you know, I committed a three month volunteer stay and they couldn't get rid of me, I ended up being hired <laughs> and working there for about two and a half years managing the woof program. And I became really interested in, in more education. And so I applied to graduate school at UC Davis and ended up doing my master's there, studying soils and biogeochemistry for the next two years. And used, I mean, I, I learned a ton in grad school and I returned to Apricot Lane for another two years after that, doing research, setting up long-term soil health monitoring programs, really looking at the impact of our biodynamic practices on soil health, and then trying to correlate that to nutritional outcomes in the lemons and the avocados, the eggs, things like that. And so it was a yeah. really, really formative time in my own development, really cutting my teeth, learning about rotational grazing and livestock integration and, you know, managing orchards and vegetable gardens and and also the social side of farming, which is in our case, it, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what I was doing was managing woofers like myself, just stepping onto farms maybe for their first time and trying to really cultivate the next generation of biodynamic farmers was something that I've been really, really passionate about. And it led me to really where I am now, which is working in viticulture for the first time. So of my 10 years in farming, only two of it has been in vineyards. So, you know, I should probably confess at the start of this organic <laughs> wine podcast that my experience is limited. But I think one of the beautiful things of biodynamics is it provides a framework for approaching agriculture, provides us a, a list of principles that can be applied on any sort of landscape in any context, anywhere in the world. And those same principles will apply. And so applying biodynamics to vineyards or to viticulture is a very natural fit. I think. Did you find any transitional, you know, uh, friction, uh, work starting to work with vines? Like were there, I mean, did you have any big learn? I mean, cause I'd love to hear like that outsider stepping into viticulture for the first time perspective and any sure. kind of, yeah. You know, I've been really, really fortunate in my career and in my own education to have a lot of really amazing mentors. I think to go back to Apricot Lane farms for just a second they had hired uh, Alan York as a biodynamic consultant. And the story of Alan and his relationship with the farm is in the film. He passed away in 2015, yeah. um, very sadly. And unfortunately for all of us, I think we we're a little bit lost without a mentor. And similarly, um, Andrew Beatty was working there. He was our garden and orchard manager. I met Andrew back in 2012 when I started. And Andrew is today our biodynamic consultant at Troon. And he's been here since this since the transition of true and using biodynamics. So Andrew is somebody who has a lot more experience in viticulture and just a lot more experience on biodynamic farms. I mean, he grew up on a biodynamic farm in England, just for starters. And in addition to Andrew serving as a mentor and helping kind of shepherd me into viticulture and learn more about how to apply biodynamics to that, uh, we also work with a really great viticulturalist here. Jason Cole runs a vineyard management company called Pacific Crest. And they're right here in the Applegate and around the Rogue Valley. And Jason's knowledge about viticulture has really been, you know, what's helped transition me into and learn more about grapevines. Um, but again, I think a lot of those same principles apply when you right. think about some of the basics of agriculture, especially regenerative agriculture. And you think about cover cropping, and you think about tillage, you think about 
soil biology and soil fertility and nutrient management. Um, all of these are, you know, all of these can be applied to a specific context like vine management or cider apples or vegetable gardens or unirrigated pasture or something like that. And just your selection of those cover crop seeds you use when and how and if to apply tillage, all of these are factors. So there's definitely been a learning curve, but I'm, I'm really grateful to the mentors who have helped shepherd me both into my farming career and into biodynamic viticulture for the first time. Lovely. Now, I want to jump right in because, I mean, my experience with biodynamics is more and more. I've, hear, I've heard more people who were what I would call like hardcore sort of cynical scientists who I would expect to be very turned off by biodynamics or parts of biodynamics, I should say. Um, actually have been really fascinated by it, have actually had, have, have like kind of come up short in trying to explain their experience with biodynamics because they've been so impressed with like the results that they tasted in wines. Um, I mean, I have, you know, the story of like part of, uh, I, I just spent, <laughs> I guess I was sort of woofing. I was like the harvest intern at La Garagista in Vermont and, um, Deirdre and Caleb, who are are the you know the the people behind Lagaragista, started a restaurant, and it was their you know con- conviction about biodynamics and why they practice it is because they were buying wine for their restaurant, and without having any criteria about biodynamics, they realized at a certain point that everything on their list was biodynamically grown, just solely based on their taste preferences and like them selecting what they thought was like the best wine and they were like wait a minute something's going on here um but at the same time biodynamics continues to have be shrouded in sort of mystery like i you know there people talk about the woo woo spiritual side of it um some people are attracted to that you know if you have that element if you need that element in your life you might be attracted to that but how but what it actually is like and how those elements interplay, like the principles of soil health and sort of holistic organ, organic thinking. And I mean, organic in the sense of like thinking of the farm as an, as a entire organism, how that balances against some of the things like lunar calendars and cosmological forces that people talk about in relation to biodynamics is really, I, you know, I don't know if they are inherently tied together can they be separated and so i want you know one of the things that you i would love you to talk about um is to sort of give us that overview by sort of talking us through a year in in the biodynamic calendar that you guys do there at troon but using that as you know while keeping in, in mind the practices that you guys employ also keeping in mind what are what are the ideals like if you had to build the perfect biodynamic farm you know, are you guys meeting that? How could you meet it better? That kind of thing. And yeah. however you want to start in, to, I just said about <laughs> 20 different things, but feel free to respond in any way. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, in doing this for the last 10 years, I have met a lot of skepticism, both in, in just reading critical editorials, as well as, you know, receiving questions from the skeptics in person. I always love to invite people to grab a bottle of biodynamic wine and sit down and let's do a deep dive into the preparations, into the more esoteric components of biodynamics. 
And I think you're exactly right. The experience that you described in Vermont, I think the ex- it mirrors the experience of Craig Camp, our manager here at Troon, and so many other people in the biodynamic wine world who just tasted really compelling wines and would always turn the bottle over on the back label. They'd see that Demeter certified biodynamic logo and, and <laughs> kind of consistently ask, what, yeah, what, what is it? What is it about this approach to farming that really brings about such vitality and liveliness and, and, and expression, expressiveness? Um, and I think, you know, maybe a good place to, to start would be just to think about some of the, the principles of biodynamics that, as I mentioned, can be applied in any context anywhere in the world. You mentioned one of them already, which is to, to treat the farm as a whole organism. And to add on to that, the farm has a unique individuality that is reflective of the, the farmer or farmers, the land stewards, whoever it may be. Mm-hmm. The, the idea would be that you are growing things that you're passionate about, whether that's grape varietals or in our case, adding a cider apple orchard and adding a vegetable garden and sheep and chickens. These are all reflective of either myself as the director of agriculture or Nate Wall as our winemaker. He has a background in cider apple or in cider making as well. And so creating a two acre cider apple orchard that contains these 40 different varieties of heirloom French cider apples is very much a reflection of Nate and his passions. (laughs) And so this individuality on our you know, little 95 acres here in Southern Oregon begins to express itself as a reflection of the people who are managing it and, and in our case, building it. And then what we're building is, is, is a whole ecosystem. We're building an organism and each different enterprise or each different component of this farm relates to one another, whether we're talking about the orchards or vineyards or garden, but also our compost making, you know, all of our waste streams go back to become compost that is our primary fertilizer or amendment here on the farm. Um, our animals integrate and rotate both inside the vineyards and orchards and all of these other non-vineyard areas throughout the whole hundred acres. The animals are moving constantly every week. Um, and that those, those different components of the farming system all interact Um, all support one another, whether that's just waste streams being used to power another element, whether that's integrating the animals to graze down the cover crops and fertilize as they're grazing, um, whether it is food that's being harvested to feed our workers, for example, Um, you know, thinking about one element of the farm powering another element of the farm. There's just so many, so much complexity and so many different layers you can get into. But those are stacking functions. Absolutely. Stacking functions is a really uh, well-known principle in permaculture. And, you know, we're kind of throwing around these approaches, these, these maybe different names for similar farming practices like biodynamics, regenerative agriculture, permaculture, all of these are not synonymous. They're slight differences. And I think something that a certification program can do is to actually define that approach to agriculture and here at Troon, we're certified both regenerative organic and Demeter certified biodynamic. And there's way more in common between those certifications and those standards that we that guide our farming than, than there are differences. And I think just to name one of the differences about biodynamics that does invite the criticism and skepticism is the use of biodynamic preparations. 
Mm-hmm. We'll go into that hopefully a little more in depth throughout this conversation and think about what we're doing with biodynamic preparations at different times of the year. But, you know, a good 90, 95% of our farming is overlapping in terms of those certification requirements, things like using cover crops, reducing fertility. He meant to say reducing tillage. Providing amazing animal welfare, um, really thinking about those circular regenerative practices of composting, um, really building soil health by building soil biology. All of these are inherent to both regenerative and biodynamic approaches, mm-hmm. and they're well understood in the academic uh, literature and well understood as you know benefiting soil health. The other kind of 5-10% of biodynamics that sometimes gets the baby thrown out with the bathwater, I think, are those more esoteric, more sort of spiritually based, or at least appearing spiritually based, and I'd love to dig into the science of the preps at some point too, um, that ends up, you know, deterring some people. In fact, when I was at UC Davis uh, and proposed studying the biodynamic preparations as my master's thesis, I was advised that, well, one, I don't think they used the word career ending, but that when I'm, you know, an early career scientist trying to build my reputation, that studying something that is phenomenological or esoteric in nature is maybe not the best first step. So instead I ended up studying compost teas and and that was fine. But my 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 research interests do persist in the realm of biodynamic preparations. Um, and you know, I think that those those aspects of biodynamics are so critical to it and yet they are so hard to explain. It's more like you described earlier, they're, they're felt, they're sensed, they are observed. And if you step foot on a biodynamic farm or you open a bottle of biodynamic wine, you are experiencing biodynamics in a glass or be, by being immersed in it. And that can be such a powerful and motivating experience for people to want to dive more into the practices. Right. Well, let's start with, here's a question for you to maybe just... I don't know. Like, uh, I don't even know how to put this. To <laughs> just delineate it in terms of certification, what are the specific things that you would have to do to? What practices would you have to employ to become certified as a biodynamic vid- vineyard or farm? Sure. Sure. Um, and it is important to specify. I know you're not. Say, say go, okay. sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, the. Uh, it is important to differentiate between the agricultural standards and the processing standards. So you can be a certified biodynamic vineyard growing biodynamic Great. grapes and sell those, or Good you can point. be a certified winery or processor. Um, you know, you don't have to handle only grapes. You could be handling vegetables and making sauerkrauts and hot sauces and other products too. So just a processor standard is separate and you don't have to be both, but Droon is, is both certified. So all of our wines are coming from the estate and our winery is certified biodynamic. So every wine that we produce is biodynamic and regenerative organic certified. So ah, that's yeah, that, a starting that place. Let's, yeah, but let's start about as, what are the requirements in the vineyard? And then then also briefly, what are the requirements in the cellar? Sure. So the right. requirements in the vineyard um, start with just organic standards as a basis. So foundationally, uh-huh. no synthetic inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, anything like that is allowed in biodynamics. And then even more stringently, the types of inputs and materials that you use, like we can take a fertilizer, for example, is also 
really closely monitored and goes through an approval process by the Demeter Standards Board. So for example, some fertilizers that might be allowed in organic agriculture, like a blood meal or a bone meal or something like that, in, in, in biodynamic agriculture can't come from either a CAFO, like a confined animal feeding operation, or from a marine source that employs really extractive fishing technologies or harvesting technologies. Yeah. So that's one really important difference that I think is reflective of the ethical standard that is behind biodynamics. And it, and it goes all the way to, you know, how was the fertilizer or the material that you're applying to your farm? How is that sourced? How is that made? What, what sort of business does that prop up? So that's really very cool. I didn't, I did not know that that is a great thing. Cause yeah, I mean, most people don't realize like if you drink organic milk, that those cows could the the corn that the cows ate <laughs> to produce that milk could have been fertilized with non-organic for like with fertilizer that was from a CAFO basically um so it's like one step removed i know that this is a bit of a digression but it's you know i think about these things i'm like how what am i supporting when i buy that organic thing or whatever not to mention that organic milk can also be made in a CAFO um but anyway, uh, that's really cool to hear. I didn't realize that about biodynamics. Yeah, so the the inputs are really highly scrutinized, and I think it speaks to one of those other biodynamic principles, which is to really limit outside inputs and build fertility and resilience from within the farm. So, you know, we go through great pains to limit those outside inputs. I think the practical reality is that in an early stage farm that has been depleted through oftentimes many years, or in our case, almost five decades of extractive industrial conventional practices, there's a need to use inputs to restore soil health originally or or sort of initially. And Mm -hmm. so, for example, some of those practices that we're using are uh, importing cover crop seed. We want to maximize biodiversity here, both above and below ground. And we think of that with the crops that we're growing, with the cover crop species that we're choosing by integrating animals of, you know, poultry and livestock. Um, We're thinking about biodiversity in terms of the incorporation of biodiversity reserves or wildlife habitat. This is another one of those standards that sets biodynamic agriculture apart from any other regenerative uh, certification program. Demeter requires that a minimum of 10% of your total acreage be dedicated to biodiversity reserves. This could be a a stream or a riparian corridor that goes through your farm. It could be a forested section of it, or it could be something that you build like a a pollinator garden or a perennial insectary planting. And so at Troon, you know, we've got more than 10 acres of, of this habitat. It involves a big lake or a pond that has migratory waterfowl. It's got um, tons of insect life and bird life humming about. We've got this kind of dry swale that runs through the farm. And then we've got more of those kind of like native plant gardens and perennial flowering gardens as well. So that's another interesting difference that sets biodynamics apart. And for a lot of people who are so focused on production models and yields and maximizing outputs, the idea of setting aside land for wildlife or intentionally inviting in wildlife that are so often perceived as the pests or, you know, uh, uh, problematic to agriculture. And yet biodynamics presents a requirement to engage with them and to invite them in is, is, uh, is something that really sets it apart. Yeah, that's amazing. And also, I mean, I've made the observation that 
you, this is where you, if you had a spiritual bent, you could see that as a tithe almost, like a the, the part that you give to the gods, uh, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> not that I do, but you know, I love that metaphor and and you know the potential to see that. Um, anyway, I th- well, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I just want to respond to that really quickly because yeah. I think spirituality is such a personal thing. Um, yes, and we can use this term spirituality really loosely and yet it means something very different to everybody you know somebody who maybe grew up religious or discovered religion you know rudolf steiner who first proposed biodynamics had this very uh strong relationship with with christianity and Mm -hmm. there's still some associations affiliations with christianity when it comes to the wider school of thought of anthroposophy that includes biodynamics and Waldorf education and anthroposophic medicine and all these other ideas. There's this kind of Christian bent to it, but to describe every biodynamic farmer as having Christian leanings is not at all the case. I think spirituality takes <laughs> off so many opposite. unique yeah. forms. <laughs> right. Yeah. O- often I find more, pa- you know, people who are neo-paganists, if anything, yes. uh, practicing biodynamics. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, we have. Is that a real word? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I'm not sure, but I think is the word I was looking for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, one of the wines that we have here at Druin is called Druids or Druids Fluid. And that's really a callback to Druidism and the relationship sort of revering the oaks and nature, revering these sort of spirits or elementals that are uh, a bit very much a part of our farming and, and, and a part of our reverence for nature. Maybe I'll drop in a, a quick a quick um, lesson on etymology. I really love sharing this with people. The, the word agriculture, when you break it down to its, its root, the word cults, you know, we think of maybe like a, a religious cult or something, right? Yes, uh, yeah. But, but it's, in terms of its Latin root, it's about reverence. It's about uh, respect yeah. for a shared set of values or beliefs, right? So a culture is, is an agreed upon set of values, you know, that permeates society. The word agri literally means field. And so if you break down agriculture, it translates to, to reverence for the field or respect for the field. And I yes. think in our modern approach to industrial agriculture, so often that is lost. But I think reverence yes. or just respect for nature um, and recognizing that we humans are, are a part of nature as, a, as opposed to apart from it is, is a version of respect or a version of spirituality even that I think really lends itself to biodynamics as a form of peasant agriculture. You know, I think biodynamics really came and, and a lot of the beliefs around working with elementals and, and, and limiting those outside inputs and things like that, that really comes from peasant farming and folk farming. And we kind of lost ourselves after the green revolution and industrial agriculture took over and it became all about mechanization and, and moving away from biology towards chemistries and things like that. And what I think biodynamics in the modern age presents is an opportunity to go back to folk farming, but apply modern agricultural technologies such as no-till seed drills or tractors or, you know, uh, I, you know, technologies like that, that can really be leveraged uh, in support of biological health and biodiversity and all of these things. Yeah. And I I mean, I really do like, well, I'll say two things. One, you know, stepping back, I mean, I, my degree is in religion and 
anybody who has studied the origins of Christianity know that it's not too far from paganism anyway. <laughs> um, <Right>. But <laughs> but also, you know, that idea of the 10% is, you know, however you approach it, it is this area like what we, you know, you might call it the wild or nature or whatever it is, but it's where generation happens. It's, it's where new ideas come from. I, you know, I often think about incorporating that 10% into my own life in other ways, you know, not just in my yard or the land that I steward, but in my, you know, in the time that I have and the, the you know, the the things that I do and the things that I say yes to or allow to happen, uh, you know, is a broader context of where new things can come from and and where we adapt and learn and grow often happens in that 10% that's a little wild in our lives. So, I don't, you know, I like that aspect of it as well and sort of incorporating that into your 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 respect of, of the field <laughs> uh, approach to absolutely i mean you know maybe one other version of that is just gratitude right spending exactly. time every day expressing gratitude either outwardly to people that we're thankful for or just sitting and thinking in meditation about the the things you are grateful for i think that there's an energetic quality to that right and this and this begins to speak to the science of it where you know using um more novel technologies, we can do brain scans and we could look at what areas of the brain are activated when people are sitting in gratitude. And, and there really is science behind the health and the well-being and the benefits of gratitude and expressions of it. And I think you're right that when you apply that same lens to your approach to agriculture, there's, in my opinion, there's science behind it. But how that manifests is so often described by practitioners as as it's, it's energetics, right? It's an energetic quality. I, I, I manifested that uh, that that thing, and I think that turns people off who are not into you know crystals and energies and things like that. But I think it's a form of, of spirituality, and it, and that is gaining a better understanding through modern science and through the use of modern tools. And I think there's the same opportunity in studying some of the preparations where, you know, by asking the right questions and applying the right tools, we can be more sensitive in our evaluations of how that might be working on a farm and, and move beyond the stigmatizing criticism of spirituality and energetics in biodynamics. Right. Okay. So you mentioned, I just want to get us back on track of sort of going through the list of what we have to do to be biodynamic yeah. certified. So you, you've listed some of the materials that we can and can't use. Um, this, the way of looking at the farm and allowing a certain amount of it uh, to, to not be cultivated. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Mm -hmm. One of the other things that sets biodynamics apart is the use of those preparations that I mentioned. So right, right. these are given somewhat arbitrary numbers, but uh, preparation 500 through 508 are these materials that we produce on the farm. Other people, especially in the early stages of transitioning, can buy these preparations. The Josephine Porter Institute, which is in Virginia, is a nonprofit that supports biodynamic agriculture by making and selling these preps worldwide. Uh -huh. um, and there's other regional groups of biodynamic preparation makers that are also making these preps and invite, you know, um, uh, biodynamic farmers, whether you're just doing it in your backyard or on a thousand acre vineyard into come learn about the making of these preps, but what they actually are. 
So 502 through 507 are compost preparations. You in five now, do of I have these to are, do all nine of these to to get certified? Uh, you have to do 500 through 507. 508 okay. is equisetum or horsetail, and applying that tea is not a requirement, but it is something we do at Troon, and and we can talk about how that's used as a foliar spray um, to okay, kind of yeah, prevent we'll back fungus yeah. and, and all of that. But that's the one that's not required. All of the other okay. ones are a requirement of the certification. So two of Got them it. briefly are field sprays, um, 500 and 501. You apply to the field. And then 502 through 507, you apply to your compost piles and sort of a, as an inoculation. Great. And in those compost preps, you know, the, the, there's a select herb and usually the combination of a plant and an animal uh, then spends uh, part of the year, be it six months or a whole year in the ground, uh, which is sort of activating the mineral component of that triad of plant, animal, mineral, which in terms of alchemy... Uh, produces a unique preparation or a product that is different than any of its original components. So for example, yarrow, chamomile, dandelion, and valerian blossoms, the flowers are the part of the plant that we're most interested in preparing. Those are all inserted into the compost piles after this, after this time in the ground. Stinging nettle is another one of those herbs. We use the whole plant and then oak bark is another one of the compost preparations where it's the bark of the tree, of the oak tree, um, that we're most interested in. And this, you know, when talking about the preps, like this, I think, could be a standalone conversation on itself and why I so often invite people to grab a bottle of BD wine and, and do a deep dive. I think it really takes time and it takes thoughtfulness and consciousness to, and presence, really, to explore these preparations without just kind of glossing over them. And I think this is one of the challenges of bringing on new people, you know, maybe maybe like yourself or like we said earlier, people who just kind of taste a, a biodynamic wine and are inspired by it might not, may or may not be motivated to spend hours and hours in conscious thought about these specific herbs and why did Steiner choose them and why have they been experimented with or why do they have, in many cases, thousands of years of uses in as, as plant medicine and human cultures all around the world, you know, what is special about these herbs? What is special about their properties and why are they chosen for biodynamics? I think this is a conversation that really deserves a whole deep dive instead of glossing over, but they are nevertheless a requirement of biodynamic agriculture that sets it apart from any other certification program. I, you know, and I, I think we've gotten to that point of, of disconnection where, you know, what is the modern dominant form of agriculture is considered normal. Um, mm -hmm. Even though in the grand scope of history, it is, it's kind of crazy, really. If you know, like if you, if you step back and look at it from a historical standpoint, our current, you know, the current industrial conventional form of agriculture is kind of insane. Um, but, you know, when I think the culture that probably biodynamics grew out of and that all farming sort of grew out of because it was this culture with deep ecological knowledge without pharmacies, you know, without mm -hmm. uh, a store where you could go and buy bottles of things to spray on your stuff. And so your the field behind your house was your pharmacy and your <laughs> everything else, you know, like the, the world around you was where you found these things. And so people had a deep, intimate knowledge that was 
transgenerational. That was, you know, part of the tradition that was handed down to you as an agricultural person, as somebody that grew out of the earth, you knew the other things that grew with you out of that earth in intimate detail and how it helped you and how it hurt you and all of those things. Like, I mean, I always, the thing that I always ask people to think about and meditate on is like a way into this is like, how do we know? And I mean, I grew up with this. Maybe a lot of people don't, don't know this, but I grew up with rhubarb in the garden and mm. we just knew that you didn't eat the leaves, but you could eat the stalks. And I was like, yeah. it, when I got to be old enough, it always fascinated me that like we had that knowledge. Like my mom knew it, but she knew it because her grandmother knew it, <laughs> you know, like, or because her mom knew it and her mom knew it because her mom knew it. And we just knew it. Like it was part of the knowledge of growing up with this plant that you don't eat the leaves, but you can eat the stalk. But I'm like, to get to that knowledge, is a really weird thing. You know, like, how do you know you can't eat the leaf, <laughs> but you can eat the stock? Like, um, and it's that kind of like, at some point in history, we had tasted and consumed everything on earth. <laughs> and we <laughs> handed down the knowledge of what happened when we did that. And then we yes. did more than just consume it. We like extracted it in different ways. Like we were like, well, this makes us sick. But if we boil it in water and dump off the water four times, we can eat it and it's delicious and nutritious, you know, like right. we've tried to eat things and consume things in every imaginable way over millennia to get to this massive knowledge that now, like in the last 75 years or 100 years, we've all lost, essentially. Most right. of us have lost, you know. Um, anyway, so it's like these plants come out of really old traditions that I think have, you know, eons of intimate knowledge with ecology behind them. And so I'm just underlining what you're saying is like, if anybody wants to dig into that, they will find their own deep connection to the world in ways that they don't expect, I think. I, I totally agree with you, Adam. I'm, I'm actually, I'm reminded of a quote um, that is, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. <laughs> and I think that's that's unfortunately that's where we find ourselves after this hundred year foray into, you know, forgetting about some of that folk knowledge and trusting the big pharmaceutical companies and et cetera to quote unquote keep us healthy or teach us or whatever it might be. Um and and I think, yeah, I think I think biodynamics again or regenerative agriculture in general prevents or, or, or rather provides this lens through which we can better understand what is what is health what is a measure of health what 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 is a healthy society look like and i think if we look around you know the us without becoming too political i i think we we are in a time where we have a profoundly sick society and going back to the land and remembering our reverence for the land and really just reconnecting with where our food comes from and how it's grown is such a profoundly impactful first step for so many people. And in fact, I think a lot of people who discover biodynamics uh, do so through having health challenges. You know, they're actually mm -hmm. seeking out food with more vitality or more energy, you know, sort of whatever that means to them. It's, it's, I think, I think in sensory studies, it translates to more nutrients, right? Uh, it translates to more of these aromatic compounds, especially when you think about wine, so much of what we're tasting is aromas. And these qualities, these aromatic compounds, like phenolic compounds, are just more present in, or present in higher quantities in organic and regeneratively grown 
produce than they are in conventionally grown. We just know that the nutrient density of foods has been lost by really shocking uh, uh, <laughs> quantities over this last hundred years. So yeah, I think I think there's a real opportunity to rediscover health and rediscover connection with nature and with community through a version of agriculture like this. And yeah. I can also understand, you know, I can just hear myself and I can hear the skeptics saying, well, you know, this whole idea of back to the land is just not uh, relevant in today's society. We have to work, we have to be productive, we have to produce material goods. And while I think it's important to, that we feed our communities, that question that's so often asked at these big land-grant universities like UC Davis, where I went, of how are we going to feed the world? How can we feed 9 or 10 billion people by 2050? I don't know if that is the right question to be asking. I think the important question is how can we feed our communities? How can we support mm. health and well-being and connection to each other? Um, and I think as sort of touchy-feely as that might sound to describe an approach to agriculture, I think that's the lens that biodynamics provides is, is a way to reconnect. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, I, I feel like I've come to the same kind of conclusion where it's more about, yeah, asking that question and how can you can feed your community from within your community? You know, like how do you have a regional food system that's a, that actually 100% takes care of that region? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, these are these are difficult things to write a certification program around, right? <laughs> that feels inherent to an approach to agriculture, but you have to somehow write a standard that every certified farmer is going to go out there and follow. This is difficult work. And so, yeah. you know, Demeter, the certifying body, and there is an international, you know, uh, Demeter International Federation that certifies biodynamic farms all over the world. It's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's been around... Um, Gosh, I forget how old the certification program is, but almost as old as the practice of biodynamics, which is approaching the 100-year anniversary. In 2024, biodynamics will be 100 years old. And for a lot of that, I think the, the folks writing the certification standards have been trying to figure out how to integrate these ideas of reconnection and regeneration into a certification program for agriculture. Um, so... It's a challenge, but I think this holistic approach to farming, this use of animals and plants and limiting those outside inputs, these are all aspects of the program. Um, and, you know, one of the other things I would just add as a requirement is a lot of record keeping, actually demonstrating that you are applying the preparations, that you are um, integrating animals and recording where they're grazing and for how long that you are keeping records of where you're sourcing your seeds from, which are, again, bi ideally biodynamic certified seeds, but at the very least organic. Um, right. You know, same thing with all of your planting material. If you're buying trees from a nursery or something like that, you, again, want to prioritize buying organic nursery stock. And all of this record keeping is really important just foundationally um, to demonstrating to this third-party verif verifiers or inspectors as it, as it is. Um, who come out annually and inspect your farm and look through your records and make sure you're doing everything that you claim you're doing. I think um, that that requirement, that sort of accountability is really important. And I think regardless what certification program you're talking about really sets apart 
a certified farm versus a farm that is organically grown or biodynamically grown or raised or whatever that might be to have that third party audit is, is I think really important as well. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that lately too. I mean, there's obviously a huge backlash about that, even from within the community of people who care deeply about these things, because, you know, (laughs) I, I mean, for, for many reasons, but, um, I, I mean, I just don't know how we avoid people lying, um, and and you can still lie with <laughs> with the certification, but but it's a hard it's a harder lie, you know. And and if you're going through the the effort of getting certified, the the you know the stakes are higher and the incentives are lower to lie. Um, yes. But I I just find that like I I find that in the natural wine community now, there it's just like without any criteria and and third party, uh, you know observe observation that it's just total bullshit um frankly and and a lot of it is just like based on the whims of whoever wants to use it to their advantage um and i you know which is fine but i then it's meaningless to me and i can't trust it or you know value it at all in my own decision making um so it's yeah so now i want to jump in though um to you mentioned animal integration but did, did you say that there was a requirement for animal integration yeah yeah there is um the most important but i know part... that some people can get like a couple rows in a vineyard certified biodynamic without and i'm sure they're not integrating animals into that yeah yeah so that's that's a it's it's a nuanced question and it's a nuanced part of the standard i think you know, as I was describing the preparations as a marriage between plant and animal part and mineral, the important part of the certification standard is that animal manures are used on the farm, largely that the compost you apply is animal manure based to involve grazing animals is, I think, important to the practice of biodynamics. But again, the, the challenges of writing a certification program, I think the ideal that we're all striving towards is the integration of animals. I became familiar with one winery in Santa Barbara County that has an animal rescue. You know, they've got rescued horses and a couple of sheep and a handful of animals that they're grazing. And those are the manures that they're putting back into their compost pile. But they're not out integrated among the vines and actually grazing the cover crops. So there's there's ways that you can meet the, the minimum standard. But then, you know, we're not going for the minimum, ideally, right? We're actually going for right, grazing right, right. and chickens. Well, certainly not a true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, so you know, it's I I think biodynamics always always strives to allow a certain um a certain practice that might not meet the ideal but is a step along the way. And I think that applying the preparations is again, it's not a requirement that you make them all on site. In fact, there's tons of biodynamic farms that have been around for decades that have been very reliant on either regional prep makers or on JPI to provide their preparations and maybe they're making the horn manure or 501, but the, I, I would argue, and I think the, the standard presents the opportunity for people to really engage more deeply with biodynamics through the prep work in a way that the more you do it, I always liken preparation making to things like meditation or yoga. It's, it's a practice. And a lot of right. these things you're doing one time a year. And so the more years of practice that you have, the more insightful you become, the more attuned to your environment you become. 
and you're you're ultimately striving to deepen your relationship with your own farm organism to deepen the individuality and the identity of your farm and so you may meet the minimum requirement by buying some preps stirring them for an hour and spraying them out on your farm but i think the practice of gathering in community stuffing you know cow manure into cow horns burying them in the ground around the fall equinox lifting them recovering these horns in the spring stirring them rhythmically like all of these practices can be deepened and it's a practice that you will, will hopefully just improve ultimately the wine quality or the resilience and health of a farm or balance or whatever it might be that you're striving for. So there's, there's layers of sort of meeting the requirements. Got it. Well, okay. So let's, let me, let me stop and ask a final question. Did you cover everything that you wanted to cover in terms of the, the sort of requirements? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, you well, know, maybe diving into uh, yeah, a gear so I, and biodynamics. Right. Yeah. This, that's, that is it. Well, so my, I guess my transitional question was, are, is the timing of the application of those preps uh, part of the requirement? Like if I just did them willy nilly whenever I wanted, could I still get certified? Like if I just was like, I just want to say that I've done all these. So I just mix them all up into a big tank and sprayed them. In the spring <laughs> would that count <laughs> uh, or yeah yeah short answer yes short answer yes okay. that would count getting, getting them out on the land is is the minimum requirement but yeah yeah okay. let's take a dive into sort of the bd calendar and lunar rhythms and things like that so yeah so why wouldn't i do that and and what is the ideal way to actually do some of this stuff um totally and, and yeah and i mean we're coming up like you said this is going to be the 100th year anniversary this is almost a 100th year anniversary episode of biodynamics i'm now realizing by the time this comes out it'll probably be almost new year's or getting close to new year's we'll be thinking about it it'll almost be 2024 and We'll also be looking ahead to starting a new growing season, you know, pruning and things like that yeah. will be starting. So maybe that's where we should start. Yeah, I would love to. I think wintertime is a really important part of the year. Um, we've been having a lot of meetings recently as a team here at Troon and involving our consultant, Andrew, and all of that reflections on the previous year and using this season, which is difficult, I think, in the West where we have a year-round growing season, especially in Southern California, there's not really a period for rest and reflection and integration. But hopefully in everyone's farming practice, you do have a season uh, for reflection and, and, and integration. And I think wintertime is that time. You know, I think of this Mediterranean climate that we have on the West Coast where we have hot, dry summers and cold, wet winters and in the fall with the arrival of our first rains, oftentimes in six, seven, eight months. This is a period in which we welcome this transition. You know, the rains are falling, the leaves are falling. Um, there is a shift, I would argue, as the day length gets shorter, there's a shift towards the elements of earth and water, meaning below ground, there's a lot of decomposition happening. There's a lot of, if we if we use that metaphor of sort of decomposition by microbes in the ground, reintegrating leaves from the previous season as a source of fertility, breaking them down to the building blocks that will become fertility and nutrients for next year's growth. Wintertime is similarly a time for us humans and land stewards to digest the fallen leaves of last season, for example, the lessons and reintegrate them into our farming practice. So it's a good time to be reading books that we don't have time for 
or connecting with <laughs> other farmers or practitioners and to really be making a plan for next year. So, um, you know, biodynamics, I would say on the topic of timing, all of the prep work and a lot of our practices, the timing of them is seen as, or I, I see it as sort of the cherry on top of really professional farming practices, meaning, yeah. you know, you have to first consider the weather, you know, first consider right. soil moisture before you go out and, you know, drive your spray rig and your tractor out in the vineyard to go apply your preparations. You want you know, you want to make sure it's not sopping wet and you're going to cause all this damage and compaction in your vineyard. You want to make sure that if you're applying a, uh, a foliar spray that it's not pouring down rain and it's just going to wash it off. So there's these kind of first, most practical earthly considerations that must be taken into account. It doesn't matter if it's like a full moon and a leaf day. I should wait if the, yeah, anyway. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Timing is great, but you also have to be practical and logistical in your thinking. Yeah, exactly. Another one of my biodynamic mentors use this metaphor of, you know, imagine yourself driving a car and you come to a stop at a stoplight and you got some music playing and you're kind of tapping along to the rhythm of the music on your steering wheel. And then the crosswalk light starts flashing, you know, stop. And that's got its own separate rhythm that's separate from the rhythm you're tapping to. And it's raining a little bit. So your windshield wipers are going and they're at a different rhythm than both the flashing lights and the music and whatever. And maybe just for a moment, there is a synergy. There's, there's a moment in which all of those contrasting rhythms align. And it's that moment that we're looking for in biodynamics, that alignment of earthly rhythms, lunar rhythms. And if we can, you know, amazingly integrate other cosmic rhythms of other planetary movements into our practice, that's that's the real cherry on top. That's the timing that we're looking for. And it's not always ideal, right? We're striving for the ideal, but practical biodynamics as opposed to a more dogmatic approach allows for, there's still benefit to getting the preps out, even if it's not exactly, as you said, sort of a, a full moon, ascending moon, waxing moon, even if it's not that ideal time, there's still benefit to the practice um, but we're always striving to to align those rhythms in a more profound way. Got it. So, yeah. So where where would you be? Where where would you let, take us through that? Like where when is the first uh, application of a preparation, or what is the first thing that you would do in the course of a year that would you would think of as biodynamics? Like we're we're in winter, we're we're thinking about these things, we're creating our plan, and then where do we go? Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned pruning, and I think that okay. pruning and tying of vines is is a wintertime activity, right? So right. taking into account those earthly rhythms first, we want to make sure we're not pruning when it's pouring down rain, and we're going to have, you know, splashing fungal spores around that are going to potentially infect vines. So first, if we can find a dry day in winter or dry several days, ideally, to do some pruning, the first practice that we use is applying a biodynamic pruning paste after pruning. So first of all, we think about doing this on a fruit day, um, ideally on a descending moon and preferably a waning moon. And what I mean by that is the moon over the course of a month will move its way through the sky 
first ascending for two weeks and then descending. And of course, every night, if you watch the rhythms of the moon, you see it ascend and descend in the night sky. But what you might notice by observing it night after night is that 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 peak of its ascension gets slightly higher for a two-week period, and then it descends for a two-week period. And that Hmm. primary movement of the moon, uh, either ascending or descending, is is a really important rhythm uh, that I think about whether the, and that's different from whether the moon is waxing or waning, meaning moving from a full moon to a new moon or back to a full, right. which is also on a two-week rhythm. But it's not necessarily aligned with the descending, ascending rhythm. And that's the kind of like, you know, the windshield wipers and the flashing lights. It's, it's right. these rhythms will eventually align, but it might take months or years for that to happen. So those are the first two considerations. And then the third one is what is the zodiac what is the astrological sign that the moon is in front of about every three to four days the moon moves across the night sky in front of one sign or another and then you know ultimately moves past it so you know the the order that the moon moves through it is the same order that our calendar moves through it and so we've got earth signs like virgo and taurus and capricorn and earth is related to the root in biodynamics. And so we think of these root days and, and just you know colloquially refer to them as root days. What that really means is when the moon is in front of one of those three earth signs, right? Same mm. thing, we've got water signs, which are related to the leaf part of the plant. We've got air signs that are related to the flowers and fire signs, which are related to the fruit. And we do different activities on different days according to where the moon is in its rotation around earth and its relation to the rest of the cosmos. So so all of that that sort of like, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say that's where that day calendar comes from. If you look up like the, you know, today is a leaf today, today is a fruit day or today is whatever a root day. That's where that comes from. And, And we try to, to do certain practices, be it pruning or bottling or applying preparations. We try to do so when the moon is in a, sign that is going to be benefiting our practice. So one thing I think of is, you know, if we're thinking about pruning, ideally we're working to prune vines so that we affect fruit set, right? The way we prune vines is so impactful on how many shoots and canes, how much fruit we can grow. And so if we're trying to support fruit production, we're going to work with that vine on a fruit day. So the pruning is done on a, on a fruit day. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we're also doing it on a descending moon. So I think of mm-hmm. not just the zodiacs, but the moon is when it's a full moon and at its ascending node, the highest peak, its gravitational pull is the strongest on Earth. This is something that we can measure and understand uh, subtle differences in gravity. And we've seen, you know, if we look to examples in nature like mass spawning events in the ocean or insects, insect hatches, a lot of reproductive cycles are highly linked to the moon. And very often we see them occurring around full moon and ascending moon times. And that is a time when a lot of these aromatic compounds and sugars and nutrients and these things that we really value in our, in our wine grapes, or if we're practicing herbal medicine or herbalism, we're harvesting these plants according to full moon and ascending moon 
because that's when the plants are going to be concentrated with the greatest quantities of these things we're interested in. If we go back to the idea of pruning and we want the plant to be most energetically ready to burst out in the springtime with growth in exactly the spots where we chose it to be on the plant, we want to do the the converse of that. We want to, we want to prune on a descending moon or pretty close to the new moon in the sense that all of those all of that sort of energy, sugar, nutrients, everything is stored in the root zone as opposed to the above ground parts. And so by just choosing a two week difference of when we prune, we can really accentuate these qualities and support the plant to, you know, uh, have balanced growth and in the parts of the plant where we want it to be. So that's one example of using pruning uh, or using the biodynamic calendar for pruning. Got it. Um, and then I mentioned the, the BD pruning paste. Um, this is a really yeah. common practice, I think, for uh, anybody doing pruning to usually treat the pruning wounds with some kind of treatment. Not everybody does it, especially depending on your weather. Um, but rather than using some sort of like sealant or wax or something else from a petroleum source that a lot of farms use, we'll, use, we'll make our own BD pruning paste and it can be really simple. A lot of people will use a clay base like bentonite clay. That's what we use. And okay. cow manure will provide this sort of biological source and nutrition source for the tree or the vine. And then some kind of BD preparations. Those are the most common ingredients in BD pruning paste. So we use those as well. Um, when you say some comp- kind of BD preparation, do you, do you have a preference for what you use? Like... At Troon, we use barrel compost. This is uh, not one of the required preparations. It instead is a combination of all of the compost preps, 502 through 507. Okay. It's prepared yeah. in a pit. It used to be of a barrel. Maria Thun, who suggested this approach experimentally to produce sort of a supercharged compost that contains all of the biodynamic compost preparations in it. Um, okay. And so we select that. And then, and then she also included uh, rock dust. We use some, some locally mined basalt rock dust as well mm-hmm. as eggshells from our farm. So you've got a good calcium source. You've got good remineralizing rock dust. You've got cow manure. And then you've got all of the comp- biodynamic compost preparations all in one. And then we use a very, very small amount. Um, kind of a homeopathic dose is very often the quantity of, of, of a... Uh, of biodynamic prep that you're putting out. And so we, we use um, about a tablespoon of barrel compost. Uh, we stir it into three pounds of bentonite clay. We're adding milk whey from our neighbors. We want that lactobacillus. We want the presence of all this diversity, microbial diversity. I should take a step back. The whole point of putting out the pruning paste is to prevent fungal infection, right, into the woody parts of the plant. And so we want to apply the most (laughs) biologically diverse and active paste that we can that's going to hopefully stick around through the rainy season and inoculate that pruning wound with all the good bacteria and fungus as opposed to anything that might come in and be pathogenic. So the goal of our pruning paste is to use ingredients in which we can maximize biodiversity and we know that it's not going to contain any sort of pathogenic organisms so the barrel compost and milk whey from our neighbors that make cheese are two biologically diverse and active ingredients. We use uh, a product that contains trichoderma 
in a lot of academic research, trichoderma has been shown to suppress woody fungal diseases. Yeah. So we include those organisms as well. And then in addition to the biological component, we also want the pruning paste to be a physical environment that will also be supportive of the beneficials and hopefully occlude or, or, or keep out the pathogenic organisms. So the bentonite clay that we use dries and hardens over the wound, the pruning wound. We use kelp, uh, include some liquid kelp in our pruning paste as a nutrient for the plant to usher healing along. And then lastly, we use uh, equisetum tea. So we make a tea out of horsetail or equisetum. And this is BD preparation 508. This is one of the preparations that's not required. But equisetum was chosen by Steiner and recognized for its concentration of silica. If, if you don't know what equisetum looks like, it's, it's a sort of dinosaur age looking plant. It has these very thin needle-like leaves it grows out of these marshy areas. It looks like, and it is, a very ancient plant. And it hasn't mm -hmm. changed, hasn't evolved very much over millions and millions and millions of years. But what it's gotten really good at, what it is a specialist of, is concentrating silica in its leaves and in its stems. And so we can make an extract or a tea of equisetum that has a really, really high silica content. And it's cool because oh. this has been used by biodynamic farmers and folk farmers for many, many years and recognized for its silica's ability to kind of create a drying environment. If you think about, if you order, I don't know, some new headphones or something, they always come with those little silica packets, you know, that absorb moisture. That's yeah. the idea. And if you can turn, if you can extract that from a plant and apply 508 as a tea, that drying effect can have a negative impact on any sort of fungal you know, or, or bacterial pathogens that are coming in, just create an inhospitable environment to them. You know, based on everything that's in this paste, I feel like you guys should open a spa and give, you know, <laughs> play treatment. <laughs> like that's I would right, just slather that all over my body. <laughs> Sounds like that's I'd right, live we'll forever. Cucumbers. We'll get some cucumbers exactly. in the garden to put over your eyes too. <laughs> yeah, no joke. You know, you, but, 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 you, you know, we joke, but you're you're not wrong. This is this is a spa day for the vines, right? We just we just made all these horrible wounds. We cut them; they're oozing sap, they're they're bleeding. But we can come in there with this healing paste that yeah. is not only going to you know be that antiseptic, uh, uh, you know, triple antibiotic ointment with all this good bacteria right. and all this stuff in it, but it's also going to be healing. It's going to be nourishing. And it's going to be physically and biologically healing. So it's not that far to, to, to uh, yeah, compare it to a spa day. Nice. Like we will cut um, you, but we will heal you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is this, this time, this, this winter time of pruning, as well as reflection and planning outside of the vineyard, because every biodynamic farm involves animals and hopefully other enterprises among the grapes. You know, I'm thinking about our cider apples, and we are pruning our apple trees as well. And we're also taking scions, we're taking cuttings to graft more apple trees because we're using these rare heirloom French cider apples. We've had to graft a lot of trees ourselves or, or in collaboration with another consultant um, who knows a lot more about apple trees than I do. And uh, grafting is another activity that we use um, the, the BD calendar for and that we do during this winter time. 
And again, we're thinking about those same ideas of concentrating that energy and concentrating all of those compounds that, again, are quantifiable scientifically, but I often think of as just sort of energetically as the plant storing all of that energy in its roots or in its above ground parts. And outside of the vineyard, we're also, you know, thinking about the calendar and thinking about these rhythms. Right. Okay. So we've got through pruning. <laughs> what, what's next? <laughs> we got a lot of seasons. Oh, I mean, this is great. Adam. This is honestly fantastic. Like this kind of depth is what I was looking for. I, I think this will be amazingly helpful to anybody who's interested. So I really appreciate you going into this depth, but yeah, let's keep going. Like, no, no joke. This is fantastic. Okay. So you Um, want to dig into springtime then? Yeah. Yeah. So at what, at what point do you start thinking about like, so you, I mean, are there things that you're thinking of when you're taking the cuttings, for example, from the, the apples and the vines, do they become just part of the compost uh, and then in in a sense become part of that biodynamic calendar or do they have their own other thing? Do they become biochar? I mean, how, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And all of those um, are totally valid uh, options for what to do with your prunings. Uh, we'll very simply, we'll pile the prunings in the center of the alleys and then flail mow them. We want little woody chips to be to to stimulate the fungal populations in our vineyard soils and so we'll just sort of chop and drop them in place other folks will totally pull them out of the vineyards and either make biochar or compost out of them i think our friends down at tablas creek um, in paso robles make biochar out of their vineyard prunings and uh and then and then inoculate that with compost teas and then put that biochar back as an amendment and I think that's another yeah. really beautiful way to uh, sort of intensify and concentrate the um, sort of the healing properties, I guess I would say. Um, you know, biochar is making these little microscopic sites for biology to then go out into the vineyard or into your soils and, and inoculate your whole farm. Um, so, yeah, these are all these are all valid options. Uh, we yeah, I mean, bi- biochar is worthy of its own episode <laughs> of this podcast, Absolutely. but it is such a powerhouse and more and more studies have just shown like in terms of, uh, especially when like what they're doing is exactly the right thing, inoculated biochar. So biochar that you've put into compost or sprayed with compost tea that has already a living microbiology in it. And those microbes essentially like move into these you know, microbe hotels, <laughs> which are, which is the biochar and just go nuts. Um, and then yes. you put that on the soil and you've created basically like these palaces in your soil for all the microbiology and water retention, you know, life stimulating life. You had just like organic matter. Also you're sequestering carbon in a form that won't break down for hundreds of years. So essentially it's the one way that we have to sequester carbon in a, in a long-term format in our soils as farmers. Um, So it's just an an incredible thing for farmers to consider. Well said, well said, you know, I think what's going on at this time of year is we move from winter past the winter solstice in into springtime, you know, I talked about winter as that time where the leaves are dropping, the rain is dropping, and it's really favoring these elementals of, of, of earth and water. And as we move into the springtime and the cover crops start growing 
you know, really quickly, the vines are breaking bud. Um, the days are getting longer and warmer. And this is a time where there's a shift. There's a, a real palpable transition that is felt in the vineyard. Not only are we getting busier and starting to apply those plans that we hopefully spent all winter making, um, but there's a noticeable shift in nature starting to move more towards that light and, and ultimately that fire element that tends to dominate towards the end of the summer and towards harvest season. But prior to that, you know, as we move out of this winter rhythm, as we've chopped or flail mowed the prunings and the cover crop is starting to come back here in the West, we're worried about frost at this time of year, right? We've got, we've got the, the tender little flower buds just showing up but we're 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 not out of the woods yet because a hard frost overnight often will mean eliminating all of our fruit set for next year or at least the flowers before they even set fruit. And so practices that are really common in vineyards out here are mowing the cover crops and making sure that there's good airflow for the cold air that tends to settle close to the ground that that air can continue moving through and out of the vineyard um keeping those buds from freezing. And there's one other biodynamic practice that we use at this time of year, too, to prevent the loss of those buds, which is the valerian preparation. So 507, as it's called, is taking valerian blossoms and putting them through a press, essentially juicing the blossoms. There's not a lot of juice in valerian flowers, if you can imagine. So it takes a whole lot of them. But we want to squeeze the juice out of the valerian blossoms, and it makes the most aromatic and just intoxicating smell. And then you ferment that. So we've got a little jar of fermented valerian blossom extract that is fermented and then again applied or or stirred. And I didn't mention this explicitly, but a couple of these preparations are stirred into water and they're stirred for between 20 minutes and an hour, depending on the preparation. And the idea is to dynamize or sort of energetically enliven that preparation prior to application. It's also very practically just to add oxygen and aerate um, Mm -hmm. the environment. You know, the valerian preparation has this association with phosphorus and this sort of warming quality. When we apply 507 to the compost pile, we spray it around the, the top and the outsides of the compost pile, almost putting this like warming blanket on it. And when you do that same thing in the evening before a frost, it has been shown in in pretty shocking um, ways to help warm in a very physical way the vineyard, if only a degree or two, and help prevent that frost damage during a, a sort of borderline cold night, let's say 30 degrees or so. The valerian preparation can really help with frost protection. Now, let me stop and ask a couple questions. Um, sure. What have what is so is valerian the first spray of the year, or is it just yes, an, and, it, and, uh, and and it's an optional spray as well. It's, but it's if um, you have shoots pushing and a frost coming, you might use it. For example, yes, yes, exactly. And then if you are using it on your compost, are you is there a timing for that, or is that just any time that you want to do that, or is that in the winter? When do you so spray it on your compost? You can build a compost pile any time of the year. We do all of our compost building in the fall. We've got a dedicated compost pad where we make about 250 tons of compost every year. And the first step after building that compost pile is to insert these compost preparations at 502 through 507. So we're doing that in the fall, but really the 
prescription is to apply valerian as well as the rest of the compost preps right after you build the compost pile and then right after every turn you know we'll shoot for two or three turns and each time we'll add a set of preparations to that pile thank you that's great now one other question we know that just spraying water on plants before a frost can and you know protect them as well do you do we have we has there been like a side-by-side kind of comparison to show that the valerian is what's making the difference in these sprays that are applied you know that's a really good question yeah it's a really good question but it, it it's subtle so you know the method you described of using water to prevent the buds from freezing is applying this principle of physics in which by constantly applying water, not just one time as we do with the valerian spray, just as a fine mist, but if you constantly apply water, the the uh, the thermodynamics of frozen water means that the water, the ice, I should say, surrounding that bud stays at 32 degrees, as opposed to getting any colder than what the ambient air around it. As the ambient air drops to 28 degrees, by constantly applying water and keeping a sheet of ice over the bud or over the tender shoot, you're keeping that shoot at 32 degrees. So by contrast, applying the valerian is a fine mist. You can use any sort of spray rig or backpack sprayer to apply the valerian. And so it's not like the water where it's being constantly applied and applying these properties of physics to protect it, but rather has this really um, hard to ascertain mechanism for how it's actually protecting the vineyard or keeping uh, the vineyard warmer. And I think that is an area for science to continue exploring is, is a lot of these mechanisms of, of how the preps are working. And, and I don't, I've never personally encountered any studies or really quantitative or material science driven explanations for how 507 can keep things warmer. But it's a practice that you know, anecdotally has been shown again and again to have a subtle but measurable effect on, on frost protection. Got it. Do you, I mean, do you have any suspicions? Like, is it a biological act and chemical action? If you were going to, you know, scientifically study it versus, you know, sort of, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I encountered some really great research out of Italy that was characterizing Preparation 500, the cowhorn manure preparation. Yeah, I wanted to bring that and up. The, yeah, yeah. The way that they approached that, they did. They, they had two um, publications back to back in 2012 and 2013, and one was a microbiological assay where they really looked at, you know, who's the who's who, microbiologically speaking. And then they did a biochemical assay, actually looking at the compounds present in it. And so I think to better, to, to, to understand how 507 works, I think we should understand biologically who's there and then biochemically, what are the compounds that are present in that fermented valerian blossom extract, mm-hmm. as well as when it's stirred into water and applied at these very dilute quantities, what are also the you know, how does the microbial community shift during that stirring process? And biochemically, what are those compounds that are maybe being transformed through the stirring process or spraying process? Or how do they transform the plant's reaction um, to frost? So I think that's a good place to start in evaluating any of these preparations and ultimately trying to pin down a mechanism is to look at it biologically and biochemically. Those are great places to start. But I think we're not going to find the answers to 
mechanisms to all of these preps just by looking at those two elements. I think there's elements of physics and sort of like quorum sensing and these really these these um, these approaches to science that are we're really just utilizing. We're barely understanding at the subatomic level energies quantum. that are yeah, yeah right quantum yeah. science right. So yeah. I think there's there's potential there to also be looking at the the mechanisms. No, it's funny if you talk to like a quantum physicist, they're a, they're a lot more receptive to some of the aspects of biodynamics than than other people because they're like, yeah, that makes total sense, you know. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, okay, so well, but you brought something up, and I'm wondering if this is a good segue. Is 500 one of the first preps of the year that you apply? Yes, it is. I was okay, just going to go so, there, actually. Awesome. Yeah, and I was going to just prompt you to do that. So you sent me in advance uh, some peer-reviewed studies that are, you know, like you just said, that you just mentioned, 2012, 2013, where it was looked at. And maybe you can just start by addressing that, because I've I've heard a lot of criticism of, of biodynamics as not being peer-reviewed in large part. And this... But you know, prep 500 is the sort of poster child for biodynamics. It's the cow horn prep. It's the one that is very distracting. You know, it's the one that everybody wants to photograph because it's so photogenic, but very few people understand. And critics use it as a, you know, as the poster child for critique of like, this is total BS. Like, why would this even matter? And who cares? And, you know, why go to this extra effort? So there you go. I've set you up to <laughs> sort of talk about these papers and, and lead into that, um, if you would. Sure, sure. So, you know, practically speaking, we use, we apply BD500 right after mowing for frost protection. I mentioned that that element of cover crop management to allow the cold air to flow through the vines is one of those practices we use. And then 500 is applied, you know, was described as by Rudolf Steiner to help stimulate soil fertility. He didn't really go into the details and doesn't talk about mechanism. And if we think back to 1924, we had a pretty narrow understanding of microbiology. And I think to that point, you know, if you read the agriculture course, Steiner has mention of gnomes and fairies and these things that again i think are very stigmatized and written <laughs> off as unscientific and i think it it is for better or worse just simply a reflection of modern science of the age where we didn't understand fungi and bacteria and if i were to interpret what he meant by fairies and gnomes i think he's talking about microbiology in the soil fairies and gnomes were the ones responsible for cycling you know, manures and and dead material into new life. And so he understood it as these unseen forces that are metaphysically may or may not exist. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I would, as I put on my scientist hat and I believe that they are simply referring to microorganisms. Yeah. When, when, when these researchers in Italy started to characterize 500, I think they're, one, they were addressing the skepticism of these application rates. You know, homeopathy is often written off as this fringe science too. And the rates that these biodynamic preps are applied to your farm are also in these homeopathic quantities. We will stir a quarter cup of this finished, you know, 500 looks like compost. It looks like humified, dark, sort of chocolate cake 
texture crumbly material that's humified cow manure you know it spent six months in a cow horn in the ground transforming into compost or this finished preparation hey i'm cutting in here because in the course of this long conversation about biodynamics we never discussed the how when or why of the iconic cow horns which have become such a visual symbol of biodynamic agriculture it has been suggested that the cow horns can be a distraction from a lot of other really interesting and probably more important aspects of biodynamics. And our lack of discussing them underlines this. But since I wanted this to be a practical how-to of biodynamic viticulture, I asked Garrett if he'd share a bit more of the details. And here's what he said. First, the 500 preparation is fresh cow manure that's packed into cow horns. Steiner proposed burying 500 around the fall equinox and lifting the horns around the spring equinox. We align the burial with the descending waning moon on a root day, which, for example, this year in 2023 was October 7th. We store the finished preparation in a custom prep storage box that protects them from EMF, drying out, UV light, and other negative environmental impacts. The process of dynamization involves stirring a tiny homeopathic dose of one preparation or the other into clean water for one hour. A quarter cup of BD500 per acre is the recommended rate. You'd ideally use rainwater, although we use well water that has not been treated with chlorine or fluoride or anything that will inhibit microbes. After the stirring process is complete, we transfer it to a 50-gallon spray rig, to apply BD500 to the entire estate grounds. This treatment will assist in the increase of soil microbial activity early in the season, which in turn helps the decomposition of the winter cover crops. This early soil treatment will assist in increasing soil organic matter, soil microbial life, and help make available plant nutrients. We spray it right after mowing for frost protection early May on a root day on descending or and or waning moon, earth or water sign, after solar noon. We use backpack sprayers to get gardens where we cannot drive the ATV rig. BD501 is applied to the foliage of the plants versus the soil with the finest droplets possible. It is known as horn silica and is made of ground quartz crystals packed into cow horns. 501 is opposite in timing of 500. We bury the horns around the spring equinox and lift them in the fall. The moon is ascending, waxing, fruit or flower day. The first BD501 treatment will generally assist in the transition of the early stages of vegetative growth within the vineyard as the soils are cool and still emerging from the winter dormancy. It is important to get an early treatment of 501 out and onto the new growth as it will assist in photosynthesis. We apply at approximately the third, fourth leaf stage on a leaf day on an ascending and or waxing moon, air or fire sign at the first light and finish before solar noon. We'll take a quarter cup of that and we'll stir it into 50 gallons of water and then apply that to several acres. Uh, In our case, we're covering uh, about 10 acres with that 50 gallons from just a quarter cup of material. And so, you know, this prescribed rate is way, way smaller than most agricultural materials or inputs, right? And so there's a skepticism that exists that says, 
how can applying what amounts to essentially water, a little bit of this compost stuff in it from the cow horn, right? And how can that actually stimulate soil fertility? And I think one of the really exciting discoveries out of these research papers was the detection of all of these biolabe, bio compounds, these compounds that mimic plant hormones. They're sort of plant hormone-like, as they call them in the paper, and they are of microbial origin as opposed to of plant origin too. So they're not just the presence of these plant hormones that are existing through the cow's digestion, through the transformation in the six months in the ground, but rather they're of microbial origin. But these compounds will totally stimulate soil fertility and have a increasing impact on plant growth at these really, really homeopathic quantities that Steiner proposed that they will benefit soil fertility and plant growth. So I think that's the first thing that's really important. And again, as you, as we sort of invoke, you know, quantum physicists being more accepting and understanding of (laughs) biodynamics, I think that they get it because these tiny, tiny little biomolecules can have such a, can inspire such a physiological cascade of responses in plants or in soil microorganisms so if, I think that's one yeah, of the really I, cool findings. If I can just jump in, I, um, I, w- I wanted to ask a question first, but did you mention 501 as well prior to this or at the same time as this, or, or, or you haven't gotten to that yet? Yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet. Okay, that's Do fine. We... That's fine. Please, no. Uh, one at a time. <laughs> but... <laughs> All in as, a, as a where do you spray the 500 is that on the soil or on the plant or just everywhere like sort of yeah you know we aim it down towards the ground thank you for that simple but okay. important difference so the field sprays of 500 and 501 are seen as complementary and opposite in many ways so what they have in common is they both spend about six months in the ground in cow horns 500 is the cow horn manure preparation and 501 is ground silica or ground quartz Mm -hmm. in a cow horn in the ground for six months in the summer as opposed to over winter. And so not only are they buried in the ground during opposite times of the year, they're also intended and, and then also applied 500 to the ground and 501 to the foliage or the canopy. And they are intended to work on sort of opposite polarities. I keep referring to this winter time as 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 earth and water being this dominant elemental force and when we apply 501 and we can talk through specific the specific points of plant growth at which we apply that it's really intended to facilitate that transition in the plant's life uh and 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 more towards the elements of air and fire so for example in the springtime just shortly after bud break, when we get to about the third or fourth leaf stage, early in the plant's growth, that's when we'll do our first application of 501. And we, we apply that to the canopy or to the foliage. Got and then the next step as the season progresses. So the, is, those were the first two steps. It was in the early spring with the 500, late spring, early summer with the 501. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and we shoot for three applications of 501 every year. One is oh, okay. that transition from just dormancy into its early okay. leaf growth. The next one we apply um, around, let's see, sorry, I'm stammering here. I'm trying to get my notes in order. The second time we apply 501 
is around the um, the transition of of weather extremes, if you will. We move from you know these wet springs with the potential of frost into oftentimes in Southern Oregon or in California, these very, very warm days in which we see rampant plant growth, you know, uh, lots of, let's say, fungus are producing spores. There's lots of pollen and spores in the air. And it's that transition between weather extremes that we're doing the second application of 501. And then the third one is to support the transition between fruit set to fruit ripening or at verasion. Okay. And specifically, we're looking to the biodynamic calendar on fruit or uh, fruit or fire or air or or <laughs> sorry. Let me try that again. <laughs> we when when we look to apply 501, we look to the biodynamic calendar and we try to apply it on either fruit or flower days. And again, yep. being that we're facilitating the transition and the growth of these plants toward better fruit quality, that fruit sign or that fire sign is really the day that we're looking to apply 501 to support that that gesture, that movement towards fruit production. Now, I mean, I, I hope I'm not getting ahead of us, but since we're already, you know, getting into the season <laughs> here, <laughs> how does the timing of the application of these uh, coincide with the timing of your application of other you know, more traditional fungicides like maybe copper or soft sulfur or whatever you guys use, stylet oil, or, or, or what do you guys use there at Troon? And, and how would you incorporate these uh, with that? Or, or do you do them totally separately? Does that, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great question. We, we do do them separately, you know, whereas we can comfortably tank mix things like compost teas and some foliar nutritionals like kelp um, or some micronutrient spray um, this 501, we really want to do a targeted spray of just 501 on that specific day, as opposed to, uh, you know, oftentimes we're going for maximizing complexity and diversity and all of this, but for 501 and for 500, we really just want to apply that spray on that day, um, with that specific intention of, in the case of 500 building soil fertility and in 501 facilitating that transition or that, that, that growth from leaf to fruit. But nice. to talk about our spray program specifically, yeah, we deal with powdery mildew is our biggest um, fungal yep. pressure here. And <laughs> this is this is quite different, I think, than viticulture, maybe on the East Coast or other parts of the country, other parts of the world. We have a really arid climate. We're blessed to not get any sort of rain, blessed in a certain sense to not get any rain <laughs> during the growing season. But in terms of suppressing, you know, fungal pathogens, it's nice to have a very arid environment. And so we've been able to reduce the number of sprays and the kind of um, intensity or maybe toxic nature of some of these sprays and really start to focus on supporting the immunity of the plant. So for example, this last year, um, or or maybe just the the previous four years, we were using sulfur, primarily at the beginning and the end of our uh, spray season to suppress those diseases, both right at the beginning of the spring when I said it's warm and it's wet and there's all these fungal spores and that's a good time to spray sulfur. And also as you're sort of cleaning up the vineyard right before harvest is another time to apply sulfur. 
this season in 2023, we did zero sulfur sprays for the entire season. And I think it's reflective of the overall health, our holistic management of the vineyard, the health of the cover crops, the, the, the presence of beneficial insects and pollinators present there. And so, and, and, then, and then also we're applying compost tea. So I mentioned that's one that we will tank mix in. We won't put compost tea that's full of, you know, uncountable trillions of microorganisms. We won't mix that with sulfur. That would kind of negate the benefits of compost tea. But like I said, applying compost tea with kelp is a perfectly great nutritional spray where we apply some, you know, kelp, which is full of uh, potassium and uh, supports the plant in dealing with stressful environments. But also those microorganisms in compost tea will coat the leaf surface and essentially take up residence there so that any time a little powdery mildew spore lands there, the resources are taken up and there's no ability for it to get a foothold. So it's preventative, and I should mention that too, that so many of our tools in biodynamics or in regenerative agriculture are preventative only in nature. They're not curative. And if you're farming in a reactive way where you're seeing evidence of powdery mildew or gophers terrorizing your vineyard, you're, you're a little bit too late. And so everything yeah. <laughs> we're trying to do early season is to set up the vineyard to support the vine's health and its own immune system, its ability to fight off pathogens or pests, um, because we don't have a lot of tools to mitigate them once they're there. Okay. So I hope I'm not taking us too far astray here, but you didn't use any sulfur this year. This year, at least in California, was a much wetter, cooler year where powdery mildew, I think, and mildew pressures in general were much higher. What did you guys do instead of sulfur? Or did you have a different yeah. kind of year? Or what? Yeah. Yeah. We, so give me just a moment here, Adam. I'm going to actually pull up so I can talk more specifically yeah, about no, our, our um, spray program. And while you're doing that, I will... <laughs> I will um, tell you a little story that you are going back to because I, I, you know, the the criticism of you know putting like a, a tablespoon of something into a fifty gallon tank and spreading that over ten acres or a quarter cup or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great story that Derek Trowbridge tells about how you know he had a, a the the guys that he worked with that that helped him manage the vineyards you know he was doing a 501 prep and he uh got a call from like the ag commissioner later in that day and was like one of your guys uh, came into the emergency room covered with a rash like a very serious rash mm-hmm. and and it turned out he was the guy that was doing the 501 prep and he had a silica allergy and oh wow um you know this they found this out but the whole point being like this tiny amount like i I think he said like a teaspoon in a 50 gallon tank made this guy look like you know he was (laughs) going to erupt in blisters and like his whole crew were believers after this event they were like oh man this stuff is actually really potent and it works we are believers now so absolutely You know, <laughs> at, at that poor worker's expense to to legitimize the practice, I think that's a perfect example of showing how just the small amount of this material can have such a huge impact. And when we think about suppressing powdery mildew, which are these tiny little microscopic spores that grow into microscopic little hyphae that then make microscopic fruiting bodies, we're dealing with really, really tiny organisms 
And so the presence of compounds that are either toxic to them or otherwise inhibit their growth uh, can, can just, you know, a tiny, tiny little bit of them can be really effective. And so we will rotate products and we're really focused on biological products. And that can either be products that have organisms living in them, like compost tea. They can be <laughs> products that are extracts of organisms, like, for example, Cinerate is some brand name of a product that we use. And it's, and it's yep. essentially an extract of cinnamon. And yep, cinnamon that. oil, or sort of essential cinnamon oil, is is antimicrobial in nature. And it smells <laughs> like toast when you're out in the vineyard. It's a great day when we spray cinerate. Yeah. Um, but that's, like that's another cookies, example. Yeah. <laughs> bacon snickerdoodles. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. um, that's another example of a biological that we're using in our spray program. Um, there's a handful of other products or sort of brand names that we could talk about. But a lot of them are, are either extracts of organisms or are the organisms themselves that will have a uh, oftentimes a mitigating impact on pathogenic growth, or in the case of one of the other products I'll mention by name is called Aviv, and that's it, that actually stimulates the plant's immune response. It sort of tricks it into thinking there's a fungal infection, and mm. again, just like that sort of homeopathic remedy that stimulates this physiological cascade, this this hormonal response within the plant to then fight off fungal spores, the plant steps up its own defenses to fight off mildew infection. So those are some examples of how we can support both the health of the plant with nutrition, like kelp I mentioned, or support it biologically by putting that biological armor of compost tea on the leaf surface, or use these other rotations of biologicals to stimulate the plant's immune response or to uh, biologically and chemically mitigate powdery mildew growth. Got it. So, and so, so far in terms of like meeting the requirements of biodynamics, as you go through the season, it sounds like 500 and 501 are the main things that you would do through the growing season. The only things you would need to do or be required to do, I should say. Yeah. In terms of the preparations okay. and the field sprays, you're exactly right. 500 and 501, which are both applied early in that springtime, as well as through the growth stages of the plant. That's the minimum requirement. One spray per year, get it out and you can meet that. If you can hit, as we do at Troon, those three different stages of plant growth for 501, we're going above and beyond the minimum requirements. And I think really benefiting the plant's growth and the concentration of those really interesting compounds in the fruit that we're striving for in terms of wine quality. And then the Do last mean, thing, the last yeah. requirement is to use those preparations in your compost pile. So we talked right. about yeah, 500, 501, and then right. 502 through 507 are the rest of them that we insert in that fall compost stage. And so maybe kind of moving into that harvest window and all of those crazy activities that we do in the fall um, might be a good place to go next. Yeah, please. I mean, and and I know we didn't really cover winery uh, requirements. Like I, I sort of mentioned, I, 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 you know, sort of we teased that at the beginning and I know we didn't get into that, but maybe this would be a good natural way to get into that if you wanted to at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So why don't we finish the work in the vineyards? We'll talk about yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> what it takes to get the grapes into the cellar. And then, yeah, I would love to talk about some of those unique yeah. um, aspects of, of biodynamic winemaking, what's allowed. And I think maybe more importantly, what's what's not allowed. So, 
you know, harvest season is this really chaotic time that, you know, either stresses out or ruins relationships. And uh, (laughs) it's just a really busy time for all of us. And a lot of people, because of the name harvest, think that it's really just about getting the grapes into the cellar. And from a farming perspective, it's about so much more than that. That's the first step, actually. And so if we think about leveraging the biodynamic calendar to really support fruit quality, we want to be harvesting grapes on a fruit day when the moon is ascending, right? We talked about all those beautiful aromatic compounds being concentrated in the grape while the moon is ascending and waxing. And if we can get it on that fire sign of Leo or of Sagittarius or of Aries, we can really concentrate those flavors in a way. So we're choosing our harvest days ideally on those. We've got them highlighted on the calendar, but of course we're using a lot of the same practices that other more traditional or more modern winemakers are using of measuring you know, acids and pH as well as bricks to, to time those harvest decisions in our of, winemaker. Availability of labor is probably another thing that you're measuring as well, right? Sure, you ever... know, but I have to say Southern Oregon is a place where labor, or at least in our context, labor is not as big of a challenge. I think if you look just to the north, to the Willamette Valley, where it's uh, primarily Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, there's huge competition for a limited labor source because everybody wants their fruit picked all at the same time for the entire valley. Southern right, Oregon is right. topographically, geologically, and in terms of the varietals that are planted here, we're super diverse. And so, you know, you can be harvesting from mid-August all the way through, you know, Halloween, uh, a huge number of grape varietals. I think it's a gift and a curse of Southern Oregon is that yeah. There's not, we're not known for one specific or, or a handful of grapes, but rather have the ability to grow a ton of different grapes really well. Yeah. So labor shortage to us is not as much of a problem, but it's also reflective of just our value system. You know, we mentioned those different certification programs and ROC has a really strong, uh, in fact, one of the three pillars that it's built upon is, is farmer and farm worker fairness that complements right. soil health and land stewardship and it complements animal welfare as the other two pillars. But that social fairness pillar requires us to uh, provide a living wage. There's a calculator online and you can look up your county and identify a, a minimum living wage that we have to pay our employees. We go well above that. We hire employees year round. They've got benefits. Um, and it's a way of ensuring that our four guys who work on the vineyard team, who have been here for between five and 15 years, and have seen multiple different owners of Troon come through that we're supporting them and their families and their ability to have good, meaningful work year round, as opposed to bringing in seasonal labor or migrant labor and having so many other issues, um, related to that. Right. So, yeah, we we uh, we we really proudly employ a full time year round um, crew of workers, both in and out of the vineyard, around the whole farm, in the tasting room, in the in the cellar, in the winery, and I think it is something that sets apart um, our regenerative organic certified from other operations. Yeah, I think that's so fantastic. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, we harvest the grapes. Ideally, on an ascending moon fruit day. Okay. And that's kind of the first step, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> our, our winemaker, Nate, 
says that the most important decision that he makes is is when to pick. And whereas so many other uh, winemakers are picking according to bricks or sort of sugar content, we're really looking at acids. One of those differences in the processing step is that we're a minimal intervention winemaking approach, meaning that we do no acid adds. We don't acidulate, we don't add water, we don't add sugars, and we don't inoculate with any commercial yeast strains. Everything else is, everything is spontaneous fermentation. And so if we're choosing to a day to pick grapes where the acids are just right, that's the most important quality um, about when we bring the grapes into the winery. And so we can talk more about those specific interventions that are allowed or not allowed in biodynamic wines. But I think from my perspective as the farmer, that's really just the first step in the harvest season is getting the grapes harvested. Yeah, We go out next and we... Yeah, Yeah. so so we spread all of our compost. We made about 250 tons of compost annually, and we have to spread that. Um, So that takes several days of driving the tractor through the vineyards. We're also sowing our cover crop seeds, and that is uh, uh, various mixes. You know, we can go into the details of this if you're interested, but um, we we sow all of our cover crop seeds in alignment with the incoming fall rains, right? We want that germination Mm -hmm. to happen when there's still some warmth in the soil and for those germinating cover crops to really hold that soil in place during the heavier winter rains. So after we spread compost and we sow our cover crop seeds, we also have to build next year's compost. And this is always a sprint to the finish to try to build uh, 250 tons of compost uh, (laughs) before the rains really arrive and make the compost pad too wet to drive out there. And it's the same issue in the vineyards. If we don't spread compost or sow our cover crop seeds before some really heavy rains arrive, we're, we're, we're kind of rained out for the season. So we're, we're, we're sprinting, sprinting, sprinting while our harvest interns and winemakers are working really hard in the cellar to convert those grapes, you know, go through fermentation and get them into barrel. And we're also integrating animals for the first time, um, after the grapes are off the vine. There's just very, when in the, Early season, did you incorporate them? Were they there during pruning or what was, was there a winter incorporation? Yeah, we integrate the animals during the dormant season from about leaf fall to bud break. We want to pull them out of the vineyards before bud break at the risk of the sheep browsing on the vines. And we don't want to put them in the vineyard. (laughs) We found this out this year, the hard way where sheep are very interested in grape leaves. They will... (laughs) They will eat all the grape leaves that they can reach by standing on the trellis wires and standing on the, the, the vines themselves, oftentimes before they even appear to graze what's growing in the cover crops. So there's something about grape leaves that the sheep really like, and they'll <laughs> eat at them so aggressively that they often break the canes. So uh, we had a few issues this year where we maybe jumped the gun, and so we decided to move the sheep back out of the vineyard until we got that first hard frost and all the leaves, you know, turned brown and started falling. So our our new approach is leaf fall to bud break. Got it. Got it. <laughs> and so, yeah. So sorry, I, I interrupted because I I forgot to ask about the animals earlier in the season. Um, so, but and the other question I have for you is the. Where is the material for the 250 tons of compost coming from? Yeah, really good question. I think in idealized farm, that would be coming from your own cows. 
and from your own cows that are grazing on your own pastures that have been sprayed with 500 and 501 and kind of have that signature and have that 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 je ne sais quoi of, of your biodynamic farm. Those are the best manures from the best cows are right there on your farm. On our little 95 acre farm and in this Western climate where we don't grow pastures as well as other places that get year round rain, integrating cows into a vineyard context and in our farm is is really, really difficult. But we look to the community and we've got a really amazing organic dairy just right down the road from us about a three minute drive. And the waste product of their dairy is manure. And we'll, we'll spend tens of thousands of dollars actually importing that dairy manure to form the bulk <laughs> of our compost. Um, again, I talked about the ideals, right? Yeah. We would ideally not be importing this off-farm input, but an organic dairy manure is uh, is a darn good substrate for building compost. We yeah, combine with that all of the landscaping waste, the kitchen scraps, the eggshells, all of that um, from our farm and from our tasting room. We also incorporate all of the pumice from right. the winemaking process, which is another reason why we build all of our compost piles in the fall is to intentionally incorporate that pumice. And so you can imagine, uh, we just actually finished our last compost pile just yesterday. You know, this is this is mid-November, and we're waiting for that final ferment that was a little slow to finally be pressed off so that we could add those grapes to the last pile. So we built about three quarters of it and just were hanging on to incorporate those last grapes and those last few layers of compost. So we just finished that this week. But um, just in time, some rain hit, right? It's literally raining as as I talk to you yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> it was, pretty, it was actually good. raining here today, so that's that's saying something. Yeah. yeah. Um so I think I think this might be a good a time as any to to then go into the winery. You know, I confessed yeah. early on I don't have a viticulture background and I have even less exposure to winemaking, but <laughs> I'll do the best I can to uh explain the Demeter certification and the requirements. Um, mm-hmm. But more importantly, I think just our approach at Troon to making wine um, is aligned with a lot of um, other biodynamic winemakers. So I mentioned, first of all, we're only using estate fruit, which is great. We know exactly how it was farmed. We get to choose exactly when it was picked, how the grapes were handled. There's no shipping. There's none of that. And it allows us to have control of every step of the process to not be buying fruit. And so we're fortunate in that regard but we're also limited to the 45 acres of recently replanted vineyards that we have here. So we get the grapes to the crush pad. Of course, we're doing a lot of sorting. We're doing a lot of whole cluster fermentations here, or at least incorporations of some whole cluster. Um, And we're making kind of every type of wine out there. We've got reds and whites. We're making orange or amber wines. We're making rosé. We've got sparkling wines. We've played with making piquette um, and, and, and have done a couple of different versions of piquettes. Um, we made a pet nat out of Tanat, which is really fun for the last couple of years. Uh-huh. And all of I've these. Little, I think I've had a, a, a taste of all of these, I think. <laughs> good. And, you know, yeah. I think the reason why we make kind of every type of wine out there that you can make is we're letting the vineyard tell us what the grapes want to be. You know, Nate, I think very humbly acts as if he's being shepherded by the grapes as opposed to bringing those grapes into bottle and into the wine that he imagines making. And I think a lot of folks who choose a commercial yeast strain out of a 
catalog that says, oh, it's going to have tropical notes of coconut and pineapple. It's, it's not what we're going for. You know, yeah. we've planted 20 different varietals of grapes from southern France and mostly Rhone varietals. And that works really well in our climate. We have slightly different soils than the Rhone Valley, but the climate is very similar here. And we kind of straddle that border between northern and southern Rhone really well. So we focused on that on, on that region for sort of imitating wine styles like GSMs and things like that. Um, we do a lot of really nice Marsan Roussan blends. And the white grape that we have planted most abundantly here is Vermentino. Um, and I think that makes up a really beautiful base to our amber wines. And yeah, yeah. that's a very um, under, un, underappreciated grape, I think. Absolutely. I'd never heard of it before I came here, and which maybe just shows my <laughs> lack of, of uh, <laughs> exposure into, into wine before oh. arriving here. But being surrounded by people who are so passionate, like, like the winemaker here and Craig Camp, our manager, has gotten me such amazing exposure to wines all over the world, as well as different wine production styles. Um, yeah. It's been an amazing education to just dive right into that and have such incredible teachers but to, to speak to the actual practice, you know, I think the biggest thing that I mentioned is all the things that we can't do, the, the manipulations that we're unable to do in the cellar. And also, not only is this a requirement of Demeter, it's, it's our preferred winemaking approach is to let these right. grapes become the types of wines, whether they're blended or single varietals, whether they're sparkling or not, is, is, is based on what the vineyards are doing. Again, Nate is very humble and he tells me that the, the really the wine is grown in the field, that yeah. everything that we're doing in the vineyard up until that most critical decision of what day to pick is what makes the wine because he has such limited influence or sort of manipulation throughout the process. And again, I think it's, I think it's humble. He, he's an artist and I think winemaking is such a beautiful marriage of art and science. And he is delicately shepherding these wines through fermentation and then mostly into neutral oak. We're using some amphora as well as some new concrete vessels that we purchased this year to make some really interesting um, wines, amphora and concrete wines. Um, but everything that we're using in terms of oak is very neutral, meaning at least five years old, if not much older, um, as old as possible, let's put it that way. And I think the result... Um, is a really expressive wine that is layered and complex and is really expressing the terroir of the Applegate Valley and of our specific area that we call the Kubli Bench. There's Kubli Road right next to us and we're on an old river terrace of the Applegate River. So it no longer floods here, but we have a very fertile river terrace that our vineyard is planted on. It's got about a 3% slope and it's slightly undulating but it's not a very steep hillside vineyard like a lot of vines are planted on. And it makes for a really great context for growing this huge diversity of wines. And to go over the things, so you, I believe, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a requirement for biodynamics that you can't inoculate with yeast. Um, Correct. And then you can't filter or fine the wine. I think that's right. That's right. Everything is totally unfiltered and unfined as well. And then there's a threshold for sulfite additions as well, probably. I don't know what it yes, is, but I think there's like exactly. a maximum amount so of parts per million. In biodynamics, 
thank you for for uh, I, I remembered all these things that I wanted to say, but yeah, thank you for the <laughs> the plug. Um, the you're right about the sulfur additions. So biodynamics limits it to 70 ppm. All okay. of our wines qualify for raw wine, which is a limit of 30 ppm. Um, so we have very very minimal added sulfites, and we're really just adding a tiny amount at the stage of bottling to prevent oxidation in in the wine as opposed to actually, uh, you know, sterilizing or totally inhibiting uh, microbial activity. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what you meant to say was you, you, if you're, if you are adding up to 30 ppm, you qualify for the European standard for Venature. Um, I think Ross 70 ppm. So they, they have the same standard as biodynamics. Oh, forgive me. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, just, you know, it's, I, I happen to know these, <laughs> that's something I do know about, uh, <laughs> but, um, okay, great. So are, are there any other things that pop into your head that are, uh, prohibitions in the winery for Demeter certification that might be, you uh, know, one, standard? I one, mean, yeah. One quick thing that comes to mind is, is the sanitizing agents as well. So, oh, you know, okay. we use, um, first P-carb, which I believe is sodium percarbonate or something. Okay. Um, that sounds right. I forget what P-carb yeah. is. I'll have to get back to you on that. Yeah. Um, but we'll use that as the sanitizing agent and it's alkaline and then we'll neutralize that, that sanitizing agent with citric acid. So those two okay. are allowed for cleaning fermenters and vessels and, um, you know, all of the tools that we use in the winemaking process. But it's a much less harsh version of sanitizing agent that, rinse, that rinses off completely um, that is allowable in biodynamics. And I'm not sure any other examples that would be allowed or not allowed, but definitely how you clean and sanitize your winery, uh, is, 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 uh, informed by the standard as well. And one thing I, I, I'd be remiss not to mention too, is how we use the biodynamic calendar in the winemaking approach as well. So one example is choosing bottling days. You know, a lot of what I mentioned we're focused on in both the wine growing and then ultimately in the winery as well is working on fruit days. So very often, uh, whether you're barreling down or bottling, you're working with the wine on fruit days. And ideally, you're also tasting wine on fruit days, too. That's been shown in some sensory evaluations to have a noticeable impact. Yeah. which is pretty shocking if you think about tasting a wine and then three or four days later tasting the same wine and how shockingly different it can be just because of the position of the moon. But, um, uh, you know, uh, trained, qualified <laughs> tasters will, will pick up on that in a way that your typical consumer might not. And so when it comes to bottling, we're actually part of that winter planning that I'm sure Nate is doing is looking to next year's biodynamic calendar looking in that couple week period when we expect the wines will be finished and ready for bottling and then choosing a fruit day or back-to-back fruit days if it's a big bottling and reserving those dates months and months and months in advance, almost a year in advance, we can predict those days that would be ideal for us. So that's that's one small example of how we're using the calendar in the, in the winery as well. Yeah, I've also, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the practice of racking, but I've heard the idea. I'm, I'm not sure what the term is um, in terms of the moon phase, but it's like you rack when the moon is basically underfoot, like on the other side of the world. 
um, mm. so that you're getting, uh, does this ring a bell for you at all? It, it doesn't, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, it's not a practice that I've done like, myself, but I can totally understand. Yeah, it's like when it means an apogee and then underfoot or something like that. I, I think I have that right. Um, is like a good time to rack your wine because essentially all the energy is drawn down. So you're not expressing all of the expressiveness of the wine out into the atmosphere and losing that when you rack, essentially when you're moving the wine, you know, from container to container you're keeping everything sure. sort of pulled down into itself <laughs> i mean again this is like not a scientific way to describe that um there might be studies that could be done about and maybe there have been but I, i'm not aware of them mm -hmm. but this is just yeah throwing that out there as something i've heard of absolutely um, i mean you know the, I, th I think what i would just simplify it to say is just intentionality you know by being intentional mm -hmm. about the timing of these activities by trying to influence the quality of the wine in ultimately a very subtle way you know whether you rack on that specific day or again three or four days later whether you taste on that specific day or a week later can have a very subtle influence that again might take a, a trained professional to pick up on as opposed to your typical consumer but that intentionality of selecting that exact day or even moment within a day for example you know, 501 we talked about as as being as sort of activating that that light or that fire sign, and it kind of has this upward gesture if you think about it in con in contrast to the downward gesture of 500. Okay, we apply 501 basically at at um, at sunrise to solar noon, that first half of the day when the sun is rising in the sky and before it begins to descend is one more rhythm in which we're trying to um, align ourselves with in the application of 501. So it's not just when the moon is ascending, it's not just when the moon is in a, a flower or a fruit sign, and when the moon is waxing, but also in that first half of the day. That intentionality, I think, really speaks to the entire practice of biodynamics and how bringing consciousness and intentionality into our practice of farming and winemaking can express itself in so many nuanced ways, but they are subtle. They are that kind of cherry on top that I mentioned earlier on top of just really professional farming and winemaking practices. Yeah. I mean, and it is, you know, it sounds daunting to be able to know all this stuff, but there are um, pretty, pretty standard charts now that you can reference and just, you know, plan out your calendar basically by, by highlighting, like you said, highlighting days when these kind of things could happen. And then, you know, like it's, I mean, what I've heard, what I've learned from you doing this with me, it, just to sum up is, uh, you know, that I, it, it, it does give me a, a full context. I feel a little less daunted by the whole thing. I see how at each step I could dig really deep and, you know, and that's sort of like part of the, the practice of it, of, of any kind mm -hmm. of agriculture like that, where you, you deepen that experience over time. Um, you know, hopefully you'll be doing it for years. So you have time to think more about it, to consider what's going into that, um, to do studies on it yourself, uh, you know, to experiment with it. Um, but generally it, it's, it's much less uh, daunting now having been through this uh having heard you say all the things that you said it's much less daunting now so i feel like i have a, a grasp my own for my own self about what goes into this and what you know what what the what the bare requirements are and then how far i could take it potentially 
Um, so that's thank awesome you. To hear. I'm, <laughs> that's I'm, a long I'm way of yours. saying thank you for sharing all this. It's really been super helpful for me. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad you have a handle of it because I feel like I'm still a baby <laughs> in this practice. You know, <laughs> no, I, I won't I've say. Been for, I've been doing this for 10 years and I feel like every time I do this practice, I gain new insights. Every time I meet with a more experienced prep maker or an elder in the biodynamic community, I'm presented with new ways of seeing the world or seeing the stinging nettle plant or seeing that valerian preparation and how it warms the vineyard or warms the compost pile. I'm just, I'm, I'm struck with new lessons every, at every step of my own foray into biodynamics. And, you know, I think about farming and every season or every vintage as a new opportunity to try something new or learn something new about ourselves and about our relationship with the land. And, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. I have maybe 50 farming seasons ahead of me. 50 tries at this is not Mm -hmm. a lot, (laughs) you know, (laughs) maybe from one perspective that is, but in the whole, uh, geologic timeframe, or even just the timeframe that we've been making wine on earth, you know, a few thousand years, really it's, it's uh, 50 years is, is, is a blink of the eye. And so I think there are these, these uh, lessons that just like you said with your story about rhubarb, there are these these lessons and these methods and these teachings that are handed down so often from, you know, generations that come before us. And they will hopefully continue to inspire our progress toward back toward folk farming, but integrating agricultural technologies that are really help us elevate our winemaking practice or our ability to feed our communities really nourishing foods. And I think it's an opportunity for science and academia to really embrace these more fringy ideas or principles and to try to better understand them as opposed to just write them off as unscientific or useless I think um, it's a real opportunity for us to embrace it, embrace that intentionality and that consciousness and really move consciousness forward um, by better understanding these these ideas and principles that have always just been explained as, you know, based in faith or not in science. I think it's an opportunity for us to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I'm fully in support of skepticism and I totally empathize with anybody who sees this because I, I mean this has kind of been my path as well of, of being sort of dismissive even uh initially towards biodynamics specifically um and and yet i think that's kind of why i started by talking about some of the the things that i've seen from hardcore scientists or just from you know people who had no uh predisposition towards biodynamics who saw that it worked in in multiple ways you know or in different ways like specifically in wine you know it was the most most expressive way that i've seen it where people were just sort of like they were not in any way i mean probably opposed to it from a philosophical standpoint and yet we're like and yet it works and it's mm-hmm. kind of works in ways that i don't know how to explain but i can't deny um and so yeah. Yeah, so I'm fully in support of skepticism and empathetic of it. And yet you're right. Like, I think your question to me when you sent me those papers is like, why has it taken so long for somebody to actually just do studies about this stuff? Like, we, you know, like, it seems like this, these 
to the two papers that you sent, for example, were like, okay, great, let's approach it scientifically. And here you go. There's some really great findings here that might support um, why this works. You know, <laughs> like it only it deepens our knowledge and and it doesn't it doesn't erode its effectiveness in any way. It just actually helps to understand it better. So yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's that's a. I always I always encourage people that if you have some influence, whether, you know, the example we've used a few times is tasting that biodynamic wine and maybe not even realizing it was biodynamic, but recognizing that there was something special about it. If you have that sort of that twinge of what what is it, you know, it sort of enlivens or awaken, awakens inside you some desire to know more or to pursue a path. I totally encourage anybody who's had that experience or kind of knows what I'm talking about to pursue that. I think, you know, I, 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 I feel called to tell a story that I just heard for the first time last weekend. Um, I went to the annual biodynamic conference and I helped organize a pre-conference biodynamic wine intensive in which we invited a professor from Washington State University named Lynn Carpenter Boggs. She's a professor of soil science, and she has done some research around biodynamics. She's one of those few academics who sort of staked her career or risked her career maybe um, to study these, these sort of these quote unquote fringe science, fringe principles. And she told a story while she was there um, that really resonated with me. So I'm going to do my best to kind of retell it. But the idea is to think about biological significance versus statistical significance. So much in research, especially traditional academia, is based around quantitative science of weight and measure and number. And so much of biodynamics is purported to be only measurable in terms of qualitative difference rather than quantitative. But Lynn nevertheless set out to measure the impact of these compost preparations that we've talked about on compost piles and the development and the maturity of compost. And so at a biodynamic winery in Northern California, she built a whole bunch of compost piles and half of them she inserted the compost preparations and half of them she inserted just soil um, as, a, as a control. And as these compost piles matured, she would come out regularly, she would measure temperatures, she would take samples, and she would measure kind of these uh, presence of, of enzyme activity, um, do microbiological analysis. She was looking at um, any number of metrics that would sort of evaluate the maturity of compost. And one of the unmeasurable things the sort of biological significance that she was really profoundly moved by, but is unfortunately not publishable, is the relationship that she observed between a fox and this compost pile. So over the composting process, it's wintertime and snow is falling. And one of the findings was that the compost pile that had the preparations in it was just slightly warmer, about a degree or two, hardly measurably warmer than the untreated compost piles, but it was enough to melt the blanket of snow on the top of the pile. What she noticed was from a stand of trees about a half mile away would be these fox tracks through the snow and up onto the sides of the pile and up onto the top of the biodynamic pile, but not on the untreated piles. <laughs> and it's really interesting. And I think she, she pointed out quite profound to ask the question of what, what does the fox know about that pile? What is its sense? Is it really just a degree or two? 
of warmth that's making all the difference. Maybe for some people that's enough, right? That's just that 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 undeniable something that's different about that glass of biodynamic wine. Mm-hmm. Or is it something more? Is there just sort of an energetic attraction or affection that the fox may have for this pile? I don't know. You know, simply it, it may just be warmth in the wintertime. That's enough for me. But I think it's interesting to ask that question of, of biological significance or, or to consider the importance of biological significance. And I think biodynamic farmers have our own examples of how we see nature interacting with our farms. You know, there's there's an enormous diversity and abundance of birds on our property, as well as insects and pollinators, butterflies, dragonflies. They're all zooming about through the spring and summertime in a concentration that is unmatched on a lot of not biodynamic farms. Mm-hmm. And that significance, I think it's important to ask the question of, of why, you know, what, what is it mm-hmm. about biodynamic farms that attracts these birds and insects and foxes and whatever it might be to, to your property? You know, is it as simple as measuring the abundance of food for them or nesting habitat? Simplistically, we can quantitatively measure that. But right. is there something else that we might be missing, either in the questions that we're asking or the metrics that we're using to evaluate health or successfulness of this biodynamic farm? And I think we, when we look to nature and we can do these insect surveys and bird counts and things like that, we can quantifiably know that there are more of these organisms on organic and regenerative farms. But why, I think, is an important question Mm. that the next hundred years of biodynamic practice and research we can hopefully dig into. Yeah, I think that's a great question to end with. What does the fox know that we don't know? (laughs) Well, thank you again. That was fantastic. Really appreciate it. You're so welcome, Adam. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and I hope you learned as much as I did. Wow. Thank you to Garrett for that. And I just wanted to address something that we use the term spiritual. I used it in the introduction. I think we used it a few times throughout talking about biodynamics, and we didn't really define it. If you are interested in digging more into this, if that bothered you in any way, and you're craving a definition for the term spiritual and how that applies to agriculture or viticulture or any kind of wine practice, stay tuned for next week. There's an entire episode that's loosely about biodynamics, but really biodynamics is just the case study and background to explore spirituality in wine, spirituality in agriculture, actually. So stay tuned. It's a really special episode, as this one was. And... It will hopefully answer both the definition of spirituality and how it's actually vital to our agriculture and viticultures.